so we're, we're concluding a sermon series this week on relationships. We've been in this for the last couple months. And if, you, if you've joined us at all, I hope it's become clear to you that in the kingdom of God, relationships are supposed to look different than the ways of the world. That we are not to conform to the ways of the world in terms of how we relate to each other, but that we, there, there's, there's something higher, there's something bigger for us in the kingdom of God. Relationships that aren't based on me using other people to get what I want or trying to get what I'm entitled to, but rather, rather relationships that are about serving others, loving others in the name of Jesus. Relationships that aren't about, in conflict situations, me getting my personal justice, but instead listening to the Holy Spirit. Relationships that honor God's intention for the gift of sex that are characterized by forgiveness. Relationships that aren't dividing over allegiance to earthly leaders or, or are, are stratified based on earthly status or finances, but that, that are united by our common need for grace, for our our common love for one, our one Lord Jesus. Um, now that idea that relationships in the kingdom of God are to look different than the ways of the world, that, that's evident from some of the first words that Paul speaks in his letter to the Corinthians. In chapter one, right at the beginning, verse two, Paul says to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. It's two, two main words there that I want to focus on here. The word holy people and the word sanctified, which actually that, that's the same Greek word, the same Greek word, the, the language that was originally written in, same word that kind of gives rise to both, uh, holy people and, and sanctified. And this, I don't know if this is going to blow you away or not, probably not, but it might that those were, that that word holy people translates an English uh, a word that is also often translated as saints. We're talking about saints here. Paul is addressing his letter to saints. Now, here's a question: What is a saint? See, if, if you even if you've heard me talk about this before, the chances are when you hear the word saint, you're thinking about like the Navy SEALs of Christians, right? You're thinking about the special ops people who do what nobody else can do. They're like the people who walk around with like a circle of light around their heads who, uh, you know, hold their fingers like this all the time. I don't know. Apparently there are theological reasons for that. But you're thinking about the people who are just like, like the very, very special elite people. And we get that even from like the Catholic tradition, Anglican tradition, where you have people who are called saints. Right? You got St. Peter, you got St. Paul, you got St. James. And so again, it's like these, these people who you would never put yourself in that category, right? Because it's just those very special, famous religious people. But who is a saint according to Paul, according to the scriptures? The answer is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are. You are a saint if you are a follower of Jesus. And again, you might hear that and you might go, are you kidding me? Have you met me? Have you seen my life? There's very little that feels holy about my life. But look at the Corinthians. Look at how messed up they were, right? We've been with them for the last couple of months. They, these were people who had so many issues. Paul is just like, like chapter after chapter after chapter. And now you guys think about this wrongly and you do that wrong and you think about this and I got to address that. 
And yet Paul says, you guys nevertheless are saints. And that's because holiness in the end, according to the, the scriptures, is less about a series of actions and more about an identity that is given to you by God. It's a God-given identity is what saintliness is is, is, is what holiness is. And so that's why Paul can say to the Corinthians, you guys are in fact holy. Now I think this this stands out in our in our world because um, because we yeah because we we have often not distinguished between the church and the world very clearly. The fact is the Bible says that that holiness is something that belongs to those who are followers of Jesus, and and that that basic idea there is is being set apart. That's that's what holiness means is is being set apart. It's it's like you've got. Uh, well, the utensils in the temple in the Old Testament were, were sanctified because they were set apart for service to God. And in the same way, followers of Jesus have been set apart in the world. They belong to him. That's why Paul says to the church of God, the church that belongs to him, we've been set apart to live life with a different purpose, a different orientation, a different Lord, a different master. Set apart in this way. Now, again, we've underestimated this, I think, because in Western, in Western culture, we have assumed that our culture largely has been influenced by Christian faith. And it has been. But the more and more our culture distances itself from that kind of Christian biblical influence, the more and more this becomes clear, that the church is set apart in the world, made to be distinct, made to be holy. I actually think more and more we are finding ourselves in the position of the early church, of first century Christians. I want to read you a, a section, a quote from a second century uh, work known as the Epistle to, of Diognetus. Uh, and this, this was written by a Christian about Christians in, in the early church. He said, they, Christians, dwell in fatherlands of their own country, but only as aliens. As citizens, they share in all things with others, and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, every fatherland a foreign land. They marry as do all, they beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They're in the flesh, but they don't live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they're citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. That was a summary of the church in the, in the second century. And I actually think that more and more those same marks will become distinctive of the church today as well. Some of the things that that epistle talks about, that's, that's what's going to set us apart as well. See, in, in, the, in the early, in the ancient world, Christians were so different from the world around them that they were known as a third race. Alongside of Romans and Jews, you had Christians, not because they were a different ethnicity, but because they were so set apart, the way they thought, the way they lived. So that all raises this question of if that's the case, if that's our identity, God-given identity, then how do we relate to this world? How do we live in this world as people who are supposed to be set apart and yet are still in this world? What's the relationship of Christians to non-Christians, the church, and the world? That's what we're going to look at today. 
Uh, and instead of looking at just one passage, we're gonna look at a few different smaller passages and, and get at this from a few different angles. So let's start with 1 Corinthians 5. So the context in 1 Corinthians 5, if you've got your Bible, you can flip it open there, is that there is a man in the church in Corinth who is sleeping with his stepmother. Sounds a little bit messy, and it is. But Paul's huge issue in writing this letter is how the church in Corinth has dealt with this issue. And it's it summarized with one word, pride, arrogance. That, that Christians in Corinth have not only tolerated this ongoing sin in, in the church, but they are actually almost seeming to celebrate, saying, look how, look how accepting we are. Paul is flabbergasted. Paul's flabbergasted about this. You never thought you'd hear that word this morning, did you? But he, he, is, he, is, he can't believe it, that they, are, that they are going so far in the opposite direction that they're actually, they're actually worse than the pagans. It's like reverse holiness. They're being set apart in a, in a totally different way. And so Paul says, look, you actually need to put this man out of fellowship in the church. Uh, you, you actually need to cut him off from fellowship as a way of provoking his repentance, him coming back. And, and you see, the church was so, so much a part of people's lives in the ancient world that that was actually an effective way of doing that, of, of, of trying to get somebody to return to right living. Today, most people are like, oh, you don't want me here? That's fine, forget you. I'll go to the street down the road where they have better coffee anyway. So joke's on you, right? Um, there was no coffee. In, I don't think there was coffee. Was there coffee in the first century? I really don't know that. I, didn't, I was going to Google that and I didn't. No, we're saying no. There was no coffee. Wasn't an option. You couldn't go to the church down the road for better coffee or just to the church down the road in the first place. So, so it was different in the first century, but that was a way of, of provoking repentance. So the passage we're going to look at uh, is, is towards the end of Paul's discussion about this, verses 9 to 13, where he clarifies a potential misunderstanding of what he's written. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. Now we're gonna, we're gonna look at what Paul says about the outsiders, but let's just clarify a couple of things here. Paul says, don't associate with, don't even eat with believers who are in these kinds of sins. Now, you might read that and you might go, I don't, I don't know if I would make the cut. I think I've done some of those things. In fact, I would guess most people have. Maybe we'll shrink our church by 95% after today, right? And, and actually, there, uh, there was a preacher in the radical reformation of the 16th century that kind of did push it to that extent. This guy, Leonard Bowens, I remember learning about him in college. He was a powerful preacher uh, in the Netherlands, baptized 10,000 people, and yet also was very passionate about excommunicating people. I remember, I remember learning this, and I couldn't find this anywhere on the internet, so it might not be true, and I might uh, be confronted by Pastor Bowens in heaven someday, 
But I remember learning somewhere that he had in fact excommunicated, that means kind of saying to somebody, you're not welcome here anymore, uh, everybody in his church except for him and his wife, which is not a great church growth strategy, but at least it saved his marriage, right? At least he kept his wife around. That was maybe a good decision. But I, I do know, I, I did confirm this, that he actually excommunicated other ministers because they weren't strict enough about excommunicating other people. This guy would bring you in, he'd, get, he'd take you out just as fast, right? So is that what's going on with Paul? Is that what Paul says we should do? I don't think it is. I don't think Paul is talking about here people who struggle with sin but genuinely want to do right, will genuinely want to follow Jesus. I mean, we're told in the scriptures that God forgives us over and over and over again. That's what we're supposed to do for each other, that as long as we repent, that there's forgiveness. But what we see here, I think, is, is somebody who is so resolutely determined to live in these ways, to take advantage of people financially, to sin sexually, to follow after other idols, that they really don't care what anybody says about it. They really don't care what God says about it. They're just going to keep on going in this way. And I think that, that's who Paul is talking about. Look, you, I mean, this is a serious case. You know, as, as followers of Jesus, he actually says, judge those inside the church. What he means by that is, is that you are to hold one another to accountability, that, that's actually, in our, our modern Western individualistic culture, that's not something we're comfortable with, right? But it is part of the calling of the church that when you enter into membership of a church, and we talk about this at the bridge when, uh, when we do membership class, that when you enter into covenant with this church, you are essentially saying, look, I'm opening myself to, um, to correction, to encouragement, to spur one another on, and I'm willing to give that as well, not out of pride, always out of humility, always recognizing my need for grace and correction too, but we are to spur one another on. We're not, we're not alone in this. We're not supposed to be lone rangers in this. We're spurring each other on so that we will follow Jesus together. Now, Paul says that, that accountability, that correction is not to be applied to those outside of the church. Because he says, look, you, you don't have, if someone outside the church doesn't have the same foundation for, for living this way, why would you expect anybody to live as a Christian when they don't actually know Jesus? Why, why, would, you, why would you hold them to that account when, when trust in Jesus and the infilling of the Spirit is the foundation for how we live? And so Paul says, it's not my business to judge those outside the church. You see, it is not the job of Christians, it is not the job of the church to be the moral police of society. That's not our job. Our job is to be a sign of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Our job is to be a counterculture within this wider culture. Our job is to bear witness through our life together to a different kind of life, a different kind of community, a different way of looking at the world. Because this kingdom life and community and mindset is going to endure forever, whereas the ways of this world are, are, are perishing. Like, that's what the scriptures say. This world in its present form is passing away. 
God, all of this is passing away and yet the kingdom of God and, and we are a sign and a witness to that. That's what's going to endure forever. So we're like this, this colony, this, this outpost in the middle of the world saying, look, there's a different way of living. There's a different way of thinking and, and you're invited in. Here it is. But this is why I think it's a mistake biblically to try to impose Christian morality from the top down on our society whether through political advocacy or, or legal action, trying to force our mindset on the world. You know, and I hear this all the time. I, I hear Christians kind of going, we got to use whatever social power we, can, we have essentially to kind of beat the powers of this world into submission. I just don't, I could be wrong, but I just don't think that's what the scriptures call us to do, to focus all our efforts on getting certain politicians into office so that we can get more favorable laws. I just don't think that's what the scriptures call us to do. We're in the world and we speak to a different way of being and living and we're gonna be hated for that. We're gonna be persecuted for it. But we believe in the power of persuasion. We believe in the power of persuasion through lives that give evidence to the truth that we proclaim rather than the power of coercion where you impose things from the top down. In other words, as, as one quote I read says, the church does not have a social strategy. The church is a social strategy. And that would be worth reflecting on a little bit uh, later on, that the church does not have a social strategy. The church is together a social strategy. Now, Paul, Paul also says then that you are not to be out of the world. So you're, you're very distinct, you're different, you're saints, but you're not to be out of the world. He says you're not to try to disassociate yourself from everyone in this world who lives immorally. Otherwise, he says you'd have to leave the world. You'd have to go off and form some culty community off in the wilderness somewhere, which I have to admit, given the brokenness in our world, is sometimes a little, it's a little tempting, isn't it? Like, let's be honest, who wants to join me and become like a survivalist Luddite in the forests of British Columbia? There are, there are a bunch of you. This is good, actually, because I would survive six hours on my own, so I do need, I do need people to come with me. <laughs> but, but Paul would say, look, if you do that, if you separate yourself, you are to be a counterculture, right? You are to be the sign and the witness in the world of the kingdom of God. And if you take yourself out of the world, you're no longer visible. No, no, no one can actually see the alternative. And so this was something the early Christians understood. It was, it was difficult. There was a tension there because there were certain things that they could not participate in. The gladiator contests were a big one. Going to the temples, that was a huge one. Those were major features of life in the, in the ancient world. The Christians couldn't do that, but everywhere else they could. They, they were present. They were involved. As Jesus, uh, well, the, the paraphrase of Jesus' words in John 17, words that are often quoted, we are to be in the world, but not of it. That's the, that's the tension. That's the balance we're gonna be addressing today. But that's 1 Corinthians 5. We hold each other accountable. We're the sign and the witness of the kingdom of God, but we are not to be judges of the world outside because without Jesus, without faith in Jesus, they're not gonna live that, that Christian life. Now that idea that we're not to, to kind of separate from the world or, or we, we are distinct and yet we're still in it uh, gets at the second passage and second topic we're going to look at, which is the topic of mixed marriages. So 1 Corinthians 7 verses 12 to 16, Paul says, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer 
and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So this is part of a bigger section of teaching on, on sex and marriage. And here Paul is addressing the particular uh, situation where a believer is married to a non-believer. Now Paul will tell us that it is, uh, is generally not a good idea to enter into a relationship like this. In fact, at the end of the chapter, he's talking to widows uh, who might want to remarry. And he says that they're free to do that. But if they do, their husband must belong to the Lord. See, if, if you are a follower of Jesus, that's the, that's the defining center of your life. That's the foundation for you. And, and so just like pastorally, pastoral counsel, you are going to, you're going to avoid a lot of a lot of hardship if you marry somebody who has that same defining center, that same foundation. Generally, it's, it's just a good idea to do that. But not everybody is in that situation, right? It's people find themselves in a, in, in a relationship, a mixed marriage, that perhaps they became a Christian after, after getting married. And so this is what Paul addresses. And he's got some words here. Uh, he's got, just, just really quickly, he says that this is him speaking, not the Lord. A few verses earlier, he says, not I, but the Lord is, is speaking. He does not mean that these verses we're reading are uninspired and the previous words were, that these ones now are just kind of throwaway lines. What he means is that on the previous issue, he has direct counsel from Jesus, that there's, there's, there's a record of Jesus speaking to this, whereas this issue with this mixed marriage, Jesus never spoke to. But Paul is writing as one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, with the mind of Christ. He's an apostle sent with the authority of Jesus. So you, you listen to him. These are inspired words too. And what he says really, it boils down to this, that for the believing spouse in this marriage, they are to, they are to remain as, as, as far as it's possible to them, uh, with, as far as it's possible, as far as it's up to them to make this marriage work. Not to leave, not to initiate a divorce or separation, but, but to make this work, to stick it out. And, and if the non-believing spouse ends up saying, you know what, you're, you're wacko, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm out, and Paul would say, well, you, that, then, that's, then that's their decision. That's not what we want, that's their decision. You let them go in peace. But, but as far as it's up to you, you do what you can to make this work. Now, this was challenging. This was really, really difficult in the first century. And some of you know that tension today. Um, you know how, how challenging that is. And, and in, the, in the early church, especially for a, a believing a woman with a non-believing husband, it was, it was so tricky. Tertullian, he's a major church figure in the second century. He talks about how, I mean, this, this wouldn't be across the board, right? You would have some pagan husbands who were considerate and, and accommodating. 
But he says, you, you got these husbands who when they find out that there's a major uh, fasting day, a day where there's fasting happening, will arrange a giant feast in the home that the wife is supposed to host. You know, like a real jerk move, you know? So, or, 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 oh, there's a, there's a charitable journey you need to go on. Sorry, we're actually doing a business trip this weekend. So it would just like sabotage these, um, these things that the Christian spouse wants to do. And this is what Tertullian says to kind of explain it. He says, well, who would allow his wife on the pretext of visiting the brethren to go around from street to street to other men's homes and worst of all to the poorer cottages? Who will willingly put up with her being away from his bed at nightly meetings? Who will, without suspicion, send her off to attend that Lord's Supper of which so many defamatory things are said? Who will allow her to creep into prison to kiss a martyr's bonds? For an honor-shame society, especially if you're the wife of like a, an important distinguished Roman man. I'm, I mean, the things that your Christian wife is doing, is, it's just shameful, right? Going and visiting the sick and the imprisoned and going to the Lord's Supper where they eat and drink some blood and, 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 and flesh. And like, it's like, what is she doing, right? So no wonder, no wonder this was so challenging. She is to follow Jesus, to do the things by the way, not that when we, I, we said last week, communion is, we don't believe we're being cannibals there. It's, it's a remembrance. Anyways, in case, go back and listen to the last week's sermon if you were confused about that last statement. Uh, the, the Christian wife is going to follow Jesus, but she is, she is going to be in this marriage where there's this constant pressure. And Paul says, this, this is a tension you're gonna, you're gonna need to, to, to work out. You can't just take the easy road and, and, and leave the marriage. You've gotta make it work even while you follow Jesus. Now, the, the justification Paul gives for that is, is surprising. He says, you do this because the non-believing spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. Sanctified. Now, that does not mean that the spouse is automatically a Christian if they're married to a Christian. That would be news to some non-Christian spouses. Like, what? I'm a Christian? I didn't want that. That's not what I was hoping for. No, we know that's not the same because, because Paul says a couple of verses later, he says, how do you know, husband, if you will save your wife? How do you know, wife, if you'll, if you'll save your husband? So they're sanctified, but not necessarily saved. So what does it mean then for this spouse to be sanctified? Well, it actually means the same thing it, it, that sanctification means from what we talked about before. It means to be set apart. That this non-believing spouse in a marriage is set apart in that they have a unique opportunity to see the gospel lived out, to hear the gospel on the lips of their believing spouse, they have a unique opportunity to come to faith in Jesus because they're in such close contact with someone who loves him. Same thing with kids in a marriage like that. They are getting an up-close personal look at this in a way that not many people do. And so in this sense, they are, they are set apart. And what this means, this is really important, what this means is that in some sense, holiness is contagious. You think about the first century world. Think about Jesus and his interactions with the lepers. The lepers were people that everybody kind of stayed far away from, right? They were, they were unclean. And if you were in contact with them, you became unclean. And yet Jesus 
actually goes to the lepers. He's unafraid of contact with them because his holiness spreads. His healing spreads to others. See, we, we oftentimes, sometimes as Christians, we have this mentality of like, like really being afraid of the world because we might get defiled and polluted by the world. And there are, there are ways in which you need to build walls of protection. Like don't, parents, don't give your kids unsupervised access to YouTube. Even if it's YouTube kids, don't do it. It's a bad idea. There's a lot of stuff they're going to be taking in that you really don't want them to be taking in. Don't just watch everything on Netflix because you're like, well, we're not supposed to build walls. We're not supposed to be afraid. Like 98% of what is on Netflix is pure trash, right? That's just the way it is. So don't, don't just go like undiscerningly take in everything. Paul says, think about what's right and good and true and noble and beautiful and, and so on. So there, there are ways in which you're, you're going to you're going to be discerning. You're going to be protecting your, your children, yourself from, from the world, of course. And, and, and the other thing to be cautious of here is that sometimes when we're like, hey, holiness is contagious, so go out there and, and spread the word, is, is that some missional church movements have, have kind of said you need to get out into your communities, into your neighborhoods, and they've really de-emphasized the gathered church. They've de-emphasized actually being together as followers of Jesus because it's like, well, you just got to go out. You just got to go out. But actually, it's, I think, primarily as we come together, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, it's, it's as we come together as a church that especially our, our holiness becomes contagious, that we're empowered and strengthened and actually equipped to go out and, and be this way in the world. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, I think about Acts, I think about Acts, I think about the early church and, and the way they, they loved to be together. They love to worship together. Acts 2 says every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. They love doing this, coming together. But here's the key, that even as they came together as a church, the walls were open. The doors were open. The Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. See, there's this, um, this sense in which as, as a church, as we go out as followers of Jesus, together empowered and strengthened, that people will, will see will see what the church is like. They'll see what Jesus is like. That's what we've been talking about over the last number of weeks. And th that will be the difference maker. And so to go back to, I know now, now I slipped into talking about the church, but to go back to mixed marriages, those marriages, if you are in that situation, if you are a believer married to a non-believer, don't give up hope. You know, don't, don't just kind of give up on this. Don't think that you are somehow defiled or polluted because of your relationship with this, this non-believer. In fact, they are sanctified because of their relationship with you. Stand firm in the Lord and, and let, let just, just be a Christian. Don't impose, don't impose your faith on your spouse. Simply be a Christian. Let the gospel guide what you say and what you do. And watch as, as your spouse comes into contact with the Lord through you. So that, I, I, again, I kind of slipped into the church there. And I, I kind of started talking about this, this thing I want to talk about next, which is, which is how that relationship between the church and the world plays itself out in our worship as a church. So here we're going to skip ahead to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is a whole section on spiritual gifts. And I actually, I'm not going to get as much into the context here because I preached a whole series on this last spring. And you can go, there's this website called YouTube and you can go back and you can watch all of those sermons. In fact, you can watch all the sermons from the last four years at the Bridge Church, which is 150 hours of mostly Craig content, which is 149.5 hours more than most of you want. But there you go anyways. You can watch the sermons from last, uh, last spring and get, get more of the context on this. But, but this issue in Corinth is a, a highly relational issue because the Corinthians are taking these spiritual gifts they've received and they are they're asserting their superiority over other people because of the gifts that they've received. They're kind of going like, look what I can do, right? You don't have that. God doesn't love you as much. And it's especially around the gift of tongues, that they're, that they're kind of prideful. And so here's what Paul says, and, and we're just going to go to verses 23 to 25 of chapter 14. So he says, So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Really briefly, so two gifts, tongues, prophecy. Tongues would be Holy Spirit-inspired speech that is directed to God, and that is not understood by others, and often not even by the speaker themselves. It's, it's primarily a prayer, a prayer language, a worship language. And Paul says, because it's primarily between the person and God, it really doesn't have a place in corporate worship. It's a great gift. It's a great gift. Paul says, I speak in tongues a tongue, a ton. But, but it does, it, it's not to be used in corporate worship unless there's an, uh, an interpreter present, because it's not building others up. Whereas prophecy, Paul says, is different. Prophecy is, is the, the proclamation of a revelation from God that, that speaks into a, a kind of a particular situation. It is often strengthening, comforting, or encouraging somebody. And Paul says because of that, because it is, is, an, it is an other-oriented gift, it is an ideal thing to, to pursue, to seek after in corporate worship. And, and Paul says this isn't just because of what it does for other believers. It's because of what it does for an unbeliever or an inquirer, somebody who comes into the church. That if they receive a prophetic word, a divine revelation, that's going to make them go, okay, maybe there's something going on here. Maybe this, maybe this is not as kooky as I thought. Uh, I, I shared this story last year when I went through the sermon series. So if you're re-watching them. You can skip ahead a minute at this point. Uh, but there was a, there's a Christian musician named Lacey Sturm. And when Lacey Sturm, before she came to faith in Jesus, uh, her life was pretty, pretty broken. And uh, she was planning on taking her own life. And she went to a church service just because her grandmother had, had kind of nagged her to. So this is just to appease her, her grandmother. She, she walks into church. She's sitting in the back row and she's just, she's miserable, hates everything that's happening. This older man comes up to her. She'd never met this man before, but he comes up to her and he says to her, God sees you when you cry yourself to sleep every night and he knows you and he loves you. 
And this Lacey Sturm had never met this guy before, but in fact, she, she had cried herself to sleep every night for, for years. And so there were a bunch of other things that he said. Her hair is just standing on edge. She's like, oh my goodness, this is so crazy. And, and it became like a significant part of her putting her faith in Jesus, experiencing transformation in her life. So this is the kind of thing that can happen with the gift of prophecy. Paul says, Paul says you, you know, when, when, when an unbeliever comes in, this, this is what we want. We want them to experience the power and the presence of God. Paul assumes that even in Corinth, where the church is not, they're not getting an A plus in a lot of ways, but even there, that what's happening is going to be so attractive, so appealing, so distinct that people are going to be drawn to it. You're going to have people coming in who are curious, who want to understand what this is. And Paul is concerned that when those people come in, that they are experiencing the power and the presence of God. You see, our worship together is evangelistic. It's not just for ourselves. It's not just so that we have this space away from the world once a week. Our worship itself is to be other-oriented. We want people to come in and taste and see that the Lord is good. This is one of the differences between uh, our, our worship, let's say Christian faith and let's say Mormonism, where you know, there, there are all these kind of secret rituals that kind of happen. There's, there's all this stuff that only the initiated get to be part of. Here, we're, we're wide open. Everything we do is wide open. The, the doors are open because we want people to come in and, and to know, to hear the, the good news about Jesus. Let's, let's, uh, let's sum this up by going to John 17. So, so John 17 is this prayer that Jesus prays for his disciples on the night before he's, he's crucified. And, uh, and this is what he prays. He prays for his disciples. He says to God, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the tension right there. That we are, as, as followers of Jesus, to be in the world, but not of it. We are signs and witnesses of the coming kingdom, of, of the life of eternity. And we're sent into the world to announce this good news. We're sent into the world because God loved this world so much that he sent his son into it so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. We're sent into this world to tell the world about this God and to point the way to a different way of life. So may it be, may it be true of us, may it be true of us here at the Bridge Church that we would be in the world loving others, serving others in the name of Jesus, but as saints, as holy ones who have been set apart for this task. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these words from your word. And I pray that they would shape us and form us as your people. 
I thank you so much, Lord, for what you have been doing here in our church and through our church. I thank you, Lord, for, for the people who have come in and who have experienced warmth and welcome here. I thank you, Lord, for the inquirers who have experienced something of your presence and have trusted in you and, and become part of the, the kingdom of God. And we pray for more of that, Lord. We pray for more and more of those, those people who are thirsty, who see the brokenness and the darkness in the world and want to know if there is something different, if there's another way to live. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in us as a church, that we would be truly sanctified, that we would be who we really are as saints, as a holy people, as a people of, of eternal life. Shape us and form us and send us, Lord, into the world that they would know as well your goodness and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.